The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good day, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show where we have a special episode today that is exploring archaeology very much attuned to the 21st century and we are talking and going to talk as many other sciences delve into in the same manner about archaeology in the digital age we're going to talk about virtual curation so the topics of digital digital data uh, virtuality, if you will, and three-dimensional archaeology as done in many cases, as we're going to be t- discussing in this show, in the laboratory more than necessarily in the field. We're going to be talking about this particular phenomenon uh, with with uh, one of the pioneers in the field, Dr. Bernard Means. Now, uh, Dr. Bernard Means has a Ph.D. in anthropology from Arizona State University, His dissertation research involved the application of theories and cutting-edge technology to American Indian village sites in southwestern Pennsylvania, many of which, uh, and this is another topic that Dr. Means has been involved in, uh, were, were discovered and dealt with and excavated over the course of the 1930s by uh, the New Deal programs initiated by Franklin Roosevelt, but that's another topic for another day. Dr. Means' scholarly, a scholarly pursuits include the reconstruction of American Indian village life from a variety of cross-cultural studies of village spatial and social organizational perspectives. Uh, his research uh, has derived from archaeological collections, many of which, as I had indicated earlier, go back to the Great Depression and the WPA programs. He is the author of Circular Villages of the Monongahela Tradition and the editor and contributor of to uh, the volume Shovel Ready, Archaeology and Roosevelt's New Deal for America, recently issued in 2013, and a number of articles on the Monongahela, which is a late a prehistoric tradition of southwestern Pennsylvania, and, as I said, New Deal archaeology. Dr. Means currently teaches archaeology at the School of World Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, and he is the director of the Virtual Curation Laboratory, which is creating three-dimensional digital models of archaeological objects. It is my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Dr. Bernard Means. Uh, Bernard, welcome to the program. 
Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Can you let's let's start at the beginning here. What can you tell us about how you got into virtual curation? How did it start? How did you get involved in it? And what is the history of virtual curation at this uh, at this juncture? Um, I actually got involved uh, by being approached by a, a, a friend of mine who was a, um, a, at the time the archaeologist uh, for the Marine Corps base Quantico, and he had an idea for. Um, using some technology that was originally developed for the uh, automobile industry to make digital models of car parts, and he wanted to use this on artifacts. Um, and so he approached me because he's actually an alumnus of uh, Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh-huh. Um, and so he thought it would be great uh, to work with somebody who was teaching here and also to have a project that would involve uh, the undergraduate students uh, in anthropology. And so that basically developed into this uh, a project for the Department of Defense uh, they have something called the Legacy Program, and, and the Legacy Program is designed to help them figure out sort of innovative ways of dealing with the sort of vast quantity of artifacts that are uh, dug up on military bases you know, across the United States and, and in other parts of the world. So that basically led uh, to us testing out the equipment uh, on behalf of the DOD and, and seeing how well it would work with artifacts. So I, I guess one of the natural questions that I would ask you, because we have done a couple of programs on curation, and one of the key issues, and I think I know a little bit of the answer to this, is curation has become an enormous problem in our profession because we simply don't have the space to keep these artifacts. They go unstudied. They stay in these repositories that are neglected and collect dust. And I, what I was, I was just thinking when you were discussing this, is this uh, sort of leading into a solution to the curation problem or is it, is it sort of previewing what we might be able to do with, with that sort of thing? At this stage, uh, um, the uh, technology just simply takes too long to actually curate artifacts. So it's sort of leading to where we're going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, what it does allow us to do is to get those artifacts that researchers uh, or, or members of the public ask to see time and time again, um, which takes staff time for people to get, or, or you might not be able to access it because it's sensitive. Uh, we can actually create digital models of those objects uh, that preserve uh, all the dimensions of, of an artifact, and you can sort of manipulate it on your computer screen and and you can measure it, and you can even uh, print it out with 3D printer. And that way, people can get to those, those unique and special objects. Um, and eventually, um, you, you sort of, it's sort of a cumulative effect. Once you've created a digital model of the artifact, you can, of course, move on uh, to the next special artifact. Um, um, but right now, it, it's, it's sort of where we're going to be going, and, and so- we're not quite there yet. So does it develop from a protocol? I mean, how, does you, how do you really get started with it, with the modeling? Um, what, what's the procedure? Take us through the process. Sure. We, we're, with the particular process we use, we're using a, a, the Next Engine Desktop 3D Scanner, um, which is a very inexpensive, relatively speaking, scanner. Um, so it, it, there are trade-offs uh, with that in, in terms of, of how long it takes to scan an artifact. Uh, and, and how much uh, sort of post-data processing you have to do. But, but basically, um, the next engine scanner, it's, it's very small. Uh, it's a little over uh, a foot, uh, foot high and about uh, eight inches wide mm-hmm. uh, at, its, at its widest dimension. And it has a little platform that attaches to it that has a little turntable in front of it. And you basically put the artifact on the turntable. Uh, lasers come out from the scanner, 
pass across the artifact, the lasers bounce back to the scanner and they record that digital data. And then the object rotates uh, on the platform. Um, and so to scan an artifact, like an American Indian uh, projectile point, for example, it takes about half an hour to do one scan of an object. Um, and then when we're scanning the object, you usually scan it vertically. And because of the way the lasers move across the object, it misses the top and the bottom of the object. So you actually have to rotate the object 90 degrees and then do a second scan of it. So each object basically takes two scans and, and, and about half an hour uh, per scan at, at the, at what we determine is sort of a good resolution, sort of the medium resolution for the scanner. Um, we can scan objects at a higher resolution, uh, but then you're basically sort of, you know, quadrupling your time and, right, right. and, and the files get really large. So. Of course. So the scanner itself. So uh, let me get see if I get this straight. So you you uh, emplace the uh, artifact. Let's say it's a projectile point or an arrowhead, however people want to uh, want to call it. In this in this case, it's it's uh, is it perpendicular to the screen. I mean, is that how uh, to the? Uh, uh, it's the, actually the uh, the it's perpendicular to the scanner itself. So the scanner, scanner it sort it, of yeah. looks like a small box and it has little lasers that come out of that box. You attach the scanner to a computer. Uh, so you manipulate the uh, scanner's software on the computer itself. The scanner itself is, uh, um, is completely run through. Uh, we usually use a laptop for the scanning process. Mm -hmm. um, and then the artifact is placed on a turntable that attaches uh, to the scanner, and it's that turntable that rotates. And, and then the lasers, the scanner itself is stationary, uh, the okay. particular model that we use. Right. And so, um, and you're saying uh, high resolution scanning takes quite a, quite a bit of time. Uh, yeah, it, if you do the highest resolution scanning, it, it takes you a good two hours to scan an object. Uh, total okay. scanning time, and then it, uh, the files usually run about a uh, can run about a gigabyte, so pretty big files, and those are really hard to manipulate. In fact, uh, one of the problems people have with 3D scanning in general is as they'll often try to scan at it, objects that are really high resolution, and then they can't do anything with the data files because the computer... Because they're too big. They're too big, yeah. yeah. So, and that's just a problem with... Uh, there's a ship in, uh, um, in Norway, I think, that's been scanned, and, and nobody's been able to do anything with the data files. Uh, <laughs> so, but the data's there. So the when, data when, are when, there. When, yeah. So the next generation uh, of computer, or two, second generation computer, you'll be able to actually uh, edit that file. So you're going to have a whole bunch of archived data that's just waiting to be manipulated and, and analyzed, I guess, huh? Yeah, and so in that particular case, yeah, so your, your um, uh, digital curation or your curation problem sort of moves on to the computer out of, out of the uh, curation facility itself. Um, but those are data files that can at least be shared uh, via computer in ways that you couldn't do with the actual object itself. Okay, so in terms of so so we're still basically in a beta stage here for this. We are very much in the beta stage for this process, and uh, one of the things that we find about the scanning process uh, itself is it it can be fairly idiosyncratic. Uh, some objects um, uh, seem to scan very fine, and 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 then you'll scan an object that appears to be identical, and it won't scan uh, well at all, and and it's sort of difficult to sort of figure out why that's the case. Um, we have a number of uh, uh, 22 cartridges from a cavalry American Indian battle from uh, from out west, and they're all from the same time period. Mm -hmm. um, they're all from the same event. They're all from the same burial uh, uh, or archaeological context. Some of them scan beautifully, and other ones do not. 
um, and we're treating them the same way, and they have the same weight and stuff. So we're not quite sure why why that would be the case. You know, it seems to me, and again, I'm, I'm working on memory. We did a project many years ago in the late 80s where we were really starting to do some exploratory work on scanning uh, Native American artifacts in the Southwest. And it just seems to me that certainly digital technology was made a quantum leap in the 80s. It sort of was the preparatory phase for being actually utilized in archaeology. Is, is it really that in the past, over the past, say, 20 years, the, the, the project, the progress has been relatively slow? Or is it, is, is it just that there has been a lot of progress, but we simply haven't recognized it or applied it yet? I mean, we're talking about a beta state still, and, and, and you know, the technology was at least invented sometime in the 80s, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, and, and if you look at the, the what we uh, see today relative to what we had then, it, it's a tremendous leap uh, in our ability to uh, create digital models of artifacts and in our, in our sure. ability to print those artifacts. Um, I think it's in a, in a beta stage because our expectations have grown. Right. Um, we're, not, we're no longer sort of satisfied with what we could have done in the 80s. We, we want something uh, with, with higher fidelity um, than it was possible. And, and there are uh, um, ways of creating digital models that are better than the, the way we're doing it. Um, but the, for archaeologists, the price point tends to be pretty high. And let's uh, let, let's start talking about that, and we're going to take a break right now. Uh, we'll come back with uh, Dr. Bernard Means, and we will get into some more detail about virtual curation, the virtual curation laboratory, and 3D imagery after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Can you dig it, baby? 
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back talking to Dr. Bernard Means of uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Means has been a major proponent of digital scanning and curation of artifacts, and we had talked in our first uh, segment about the procedure of scanning and what it does and how it works. Uh, Bernard, why don't you take us a little bit through the applications that you've been doing with the scanner and how you assemble some of these data. We've talked about how difficult it is to actually uh, manipulate the data, but with what you're actually doing right now at the university and in your uh, own applications for your research. Sure. Um, well, one of the things that we try to do with the project uh, um, was to try to scan as many different kind of artifacts as we could. Um, there, are, there are other people who have been sort of working with the, the same scanner or similar scanners, but they tend to be sort of uh, very sort of project-specifically focused. And, and because we were testing the equipment, uh, we wanted to do as many artifacts as we could. And I've developed uh, relationships with people sort of throughout the, the region, and so I just basically go to them and say, we're, we're looking for, you know, artifacts that we can scan. We're looking for a wide range of artifacts. And we want to do things that could meet uh, um, uh, my research needs and, and, and interests. Uh, and also, um, I, the people that work with me are, are undergraduate students uh, who are anthropology students. And I work with them, and I ask them, what are they interested in? And so that helps drive things. And then the various institutions we go to, we'll go to them and say, you know, what, what, what kind of research are you doing? Um, and the basic idea is that we develop all of these sort of different overlapping research um, uh, worlds, and that, <clears throat> that allows us to have things available for people uh, in, the, uh, in the future as well. Sorry. So, so let's talk about an example. Give us a, some, some example that you would actually utilize in conjunction with your students, a project, or a uh, particular series of uh, data manipulation scans that uh, would lead to some interesting conclusions. Uh, well, for example, one of the things that we were um, working on scanning right now are uh, – Sherds from American Indians from southeastern Pennsylvania known as the Susquehanna. And these are uh, pieces of pottery fragments. They're on jars. They, have, uh, they represent human faces. And one of the things that we're interested in, in studying is to see whether or not um, some of the variation that we see amongst these faces uh, uh, can be uh, sort of basically quantified. Are, are there consistent patterns? And by scanning uh, uh, these sort of face shirts from different uh, collections, um, we can sort of integrate them into a digital collection, and we can we can do our measurements and, and make our comparisons, and, and then try to dis- decide if that can be tied into some of the sort of sort of deeper uh, um, uh, cultural patterns uh, and, and, and sort of religious practices uh, that were common to those, those American Indians. Um, in my own research, I've been focusing on scanning uh, artifacts associated with with the Monongahela tradition. Um, particularly those artifacts that are associated uh, with the, uh, the excavations that were done in the 1930s. Um, and so in that particular way, I can actually uh, extend my own analyses of those sites 
Uh, I can share the digital models with other researchers. Um, uh, when I'm teaching my classes, I can show students uh, digital models of objects that are hundreds of miles away up in, uh, in the sort of state museum, something I couldn't do uh, with my classes otherwise. Uh, and I can also um, share those models by, um, we have a 3D printer, so we can make a 3D printer, and I can, uh, when I'm going to uh, an archaeological conference or going to a high school, and I'm talking about these um, uh, these objects, I can show people sort of replicas and sort of give them a sense. Um, and, and that's something I couldn't really do with the objects themselves. Um, it's not something I would feel uh, safe uh, um, dragging out of the museum and, and sort of, of carting around with me. So, um, And then I'll, I'll just want to sort of mention some of my um, students have uh, various sundry interests as well. Um, I have a student who's uh, done a, a field school at uh, George Washington's uh, Ferry Farm, where George Washington uh, grew up. Um, and she's interested in the American Indian past that predated the Washington occupation. And so she's been scanning uh, and and measuring uh, the uh, uh, projectile points, the arrowheads from from that particular site, and, as, and that's sort of a, a way of sort of letting people know and, and sort of be aware of that uh, deeper uh, American Indian past. So, um, what kind of patterns is she coming up with? And uh, I, you know, you had talked earlier about. Uh, the tremendous amount of space that the files take um, on these types of studies where the undergraduates are doing uh, basic projects to look at patterning in the archaeological record is she was she able to generate some patterning and some trends um, actually the, that particular research is uh, very much sort of at the beginning uh, uh -huh. so uh, so she 's been focusing on assembling the digital data files and then she 's moving into the analysis uh, stage right now. Uh, right. Basically, what she's being able to do is sort of develop a, um, a, a framework for, for looking at the sort of the chronological periods represented. And because we've also scanned stuff from other sites, uh, the same sort of uh, artifacts, she can actually make direct comparisons to other sites in the region to see if there's sort of any significant variation. Um, but that's, that's, that's uh, a lot of these projects. Um, we've sort of gotten, we've sort of moved through the data collection phase of, of scanning. Right. And we're still doing that. And um, this, uh, this uh, particular semester, which actually begins tomorrow morning, um, they're moving into the analytical stage. And, and I, have, uh, I have actually four students that are doing honors theses um, where they're going to work on analyzing uh, the artifacts or, or, uh, or animal bone remains uh, that they've been scanning. And those remains are scanned as well, obviously, and uh, provide a pretty unique data set. For analysis, I would assume. Yeah, yeah and, and in fact, I have a. Um, we've been working a lot with the uh, Virginia Museum of Natural History, which is located in uh, southwestern Virginia in Martinsville, and they've been providing us with animal bone uh, uh, skeletons they have in their type collection. Um, and I have a student who's interested in zooarchaeology, so she's been working on developing a digital type collection that anybody be able to uh, download and, and sort of access and and make their own studies. Um, the focus has been on. Um, uh, on a raccoon skeleton, and uh, we're also doing a passenger pigeon, and then we're going to be moving on to some of the sort of larger animals, uh, deer and, uh, and other items. Um, and this is useful not only um, for you know, people who don't have a, a, a zooarchaeological type collection, uh, but certainly interested in, you know, for, or useful for people who are teaching about it and don't have the collections themselves. 
So is the um, interpretive potential the interpretive potential obviously is very very strong but I mean at the most basic level is it mainly descriptive is it used for descriptive purposes or again if you have large collections you can start to play around with statistical comparisons I would assume uh, yeah, exactly. When you have the large collections, because you can make, uh, um, uh, there's actually free software out there that allow you to make multiple sort of complicated measurements of the digital objects. Right. And so you're, you're going beyond just measuring sort of length, width, and, and, and thickness of and the object. And thickness, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we're also, um, you know, again, it's sort of at the sort of, uh, it's almost in the beta stage of developing these type collections. Um, because until once we cr once we create the digital uh, type collection, then we can start communicating with other individuals and seeing how we can sort of um, use that sort of expand the, the research potential. Um, one of the th one of the skeletons that uh, we're scanning um, uh, for the Virginia Museum of Natural History is a uh, passenger pigeon skeleton uh, because passenger pigeons went extinct um, 99 years ago, as a matter of fact. Really? I found that out. I found that out yesterday. Uh, the hundredth anniversary of the passenger pigeon extinction is next year. Wow! Um, and one of the issues is that um, a lot of people have passenger pigeon in their archaeological collections, in the at least in the eastern United States, because they were so common. Um, but nobody has an actual passenger pigeon skeleton. Um, so by scanning the passenger pigeon elements, that'll really help people go back and look at some of their sort of bird remains and and identify this, what was once a very common animal. Now, are you able to generate reconstructions based on fragments? We can. We can actually um, uh, use 3D modeling software. So we can take the parts that we don't have right. uh, of the elements and sort of uh, fill them in. And, and in fact, um, uh, we're, we actually scanned a couple of fossil whale skeleton uh, uh, elements uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I went with a couple of students uh, to the Virginia Museum of Natural History, and it's not an archaeology thing, uh, but it's sort of an archaeological problem. They have a, sure. uh, a juvenile whale skull, um, but they don't have any juvenile postcranial elements, um, so nothing, nothing from the vertebra. Uh, but they have an adult whale skeleton, and so what we did is we scanned the adult whale vertebra, and we're going to scale those down to the size they would have been in for the juvenile, and then they can make a replica. They can print replicas. Um, and so that's something we could do archaeologically as well. So we, if we're missing elements of a skeleton, we could sort of interpolate them, or if we're trying to, you know, get something of a, of a different site, we can we can interpret that once we have the digital models. And you can also extrapolate them, I would imagine. Generate. I mean, one can sort of visualize growth rates and growth curves and maturation uh, developments in, in in certain species. I would imagine that that's a very useful tool for that sort of thing. Um, yeah, in fact, one of the um, uh, one of the big initiatives that's going on right now with sort of digital scanning is the scanning of hominin remains. Uh, that's what um, I was going to say. That's yeah, the, next the, step. the Smithsonian's been very active with that, uh, for example. And you're able to do that, and probably you could generate growth curves for early hominids as well, and uh, to sort of reconstruct sized, uh, sizes and distributions and. Um, Effectively, well, you know, the the the, the I guess the poss possibilities are unlimited, and um, I, I'm just curious as to where you see this going. What's the next step? Well, I think I well, I mean, the ultimate future goal is is to have it so that if you're sitting in your house, you have your 3D printer, and so you're studying a, 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 um, the artifacts on screen, but you want to sort of make your own that that you want to sort of 
sort of play with, or maybe you want to reconstruct your own hominin, and you've got the elements, and you can <laughs> you can take the elements that that exist, and you can mirror. Like if you have a left you know bone, you can mirror and make the right bone, and you can actually make your own uh, reconstruction. Uh, one of the I think one of the sort of really sort of powerful aspects of of the virtual archaeology and uh, um, and the ability to manipulate the models actually brought to my attention. Um, I got contacted by a, a, a blind individual who uh, specializes in something he calls tactile graphics, and he's been blind since birth. Very interesting right. in history, uh, but when he goes to museums, there's almost nothing for him to do. Um, but he can um, take the digital models. Uh, uh, print them and actually sort of get an appreciation for that object in ways that he couldn't. And that way, so if I if I scan something, say from uh, 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 you know uh, Mount Vernon, something that belonged to George Washington in his later years, and we put that online, uh, somebody who's this, this particular gentleman lives in Oregon, he could actually download and then print that object. Um, and that and he and, and he wouldn't otherwise be able to sort of understand and appreciate that object. And certainly a verbal uh, uh, description. You know, really doesn't do it justice. Doesn't make any sense. Sure, of yeah. course. Well, we're going to take another break, and we will be back and continue our discussions on virtual modeling and 3D generations of in and uh, developments in the uh, virtual curation laboratory with Dr. Bernard Means after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever, for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. 
Now, back to the program. We are talking with uh, Dr. Bernard Means, uh, an archaeologist at Virginia Commonwealth University, about virtual curation and digital imagery and three-dimensional imagery. And as we had indicated earlier, the digital age is uh, very much alive and well in the domain of archaeology. Uh, we had talked about the digital potential and the uh, virtual curation potential for older artifacts going back to uh, Native American spear points, projectile points. But I understand from Dr. Means that uh, recent work has also been undertaken on more contempt well, I won't say contemporary, but certainly historically significant artifacts. You were discussing, we were discussing during the break, uh, digitizing assemblages from World War II. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that and how your students are actually utilizing this technology? Um, sure. Um, there's a uh, there's a local high school, uh, Cloverfield High School, not too far away from uh, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, and uh, and I know one of the uh, history teachers there. He was he used to be a former uh, teaching assistant, and we had gone there to do a little uh, program and talk to the students, the high school students uh, from a couple of honors classes uh, about the 3D scanning project. And I got to talking to one of the uh, other history teachers there, a gentleman by the name of. Uh, James Tressler, and he's assembled a spectacular collection of uh, World War II artifacts, and it, it, it went back to his, uh, um, uh, I believe it was his father, uh, was actually in the D-Day invasions and, and had collected some objects, and mm -hmm. that was sort of the seed for uh, the collection, and some really sort of spectacular uh, uh, items that he had recovered. Um, he has a, a, a German bomb fragment that was recovered from the rubble of London, and uh, um, a uh, uh, an Eiffel Tower souvenir that his uh, um, grandfather picked up in, in Paris has a little American flag on it. Wow! And uh, um, even and things that people have begun to send to him are, are in this very sort of uh, really well done, very sort of um, small museum in the in the middle of the high school. Uh, he has a Japanese enlisted man's uh, uh, letter stamp and, and things along, along those lines. And so, um, but the the the, uh, the spectacular collection is not really one that's accessible to the to the general public. And it's a high school, and for understandable reasons, it's sort of a very secure location. And he'd like to get sort of the message out about um, the sort of the research potential of this collection and make it more widely available. So, with my students, we've been uh, scanning um, these various objects, and uh, we're planning on going back to the high school and sort of uh, doing a program on the objects from a sort of a digital perspective. Uh, and then looking at some of the other objects uh, in their collection. And one of the things I found in my own archaeology is that um, if, you, if you're trying to get people interested in, in archaeology, one of the ways to do that is to get them interested in the recent past and how archaeology can tell us something about that, um, because it's something they can sort of see, and then you sort of get them hooked, and you can take them uh, back deeper into the past. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you um, can, you can, you can sort of, uh, you, you have sort of a check and balance on the validity of the system in a way, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing as well is that you know you know a lot about these objects because they are of the, the recent past, and right. so you can sort of test how well can can uh, can we learn about them from a digital perspective, and and then match that against the actual archaeological record so or the actual of, historical. What record. kind of exercises have they practiced for that? 
Um, well, we haven't done this yet in, in the high school. What we have done is we've done uh, um, sort of uh, um, identification exercises where uh, we give them uh, sort of digital uh, models and have them try to treat them as if they're actual artifacts and, and sort of study them and try to identify them. Now, arrowheads are, are very popular with people, Clearly, and that's yes. been one of the things we've we've used uh, in, in, in trying to see how – and part of that is from our own perspective. How well do people um, – Sort of take to the digital uh, technology, um, and and uh, and we've done that in sort of a number of different venues. I've done it in my classes as well, and and we basically find that uh, uh, people are sort of uh, really sort of fascinated with the creation process of the digital models, and they're really interested in in sort of the replicas we make from the digital models. But the digital models themselves, at least, um, are of less interest to them. They they want something to touch. Um, so just, that's sort just of an like most aspect. people do in archaeology, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so regardless of – and this is true for avocational archaeologists or general members of the public or professional archaeologists. Um, they really get excited about something physical, um, even yeah, if that, the, it's not quite as accurate as the digital model. The 3D uh, um, uh, um, printing process is, is, is in a very rough beta stage uh, currently. And I imagine the students uh, find this sort of thing very motivating uh, because it's very tangible. Obviously, I mean, my own experience with with high school kids is their attention spans leave uh, certainly some room. Um, but uh, this is the sort of thing that would captivate and stimulate the brain, I would think. Well, and that's uh, and that's one of the things I've actually talked to a number of education people about it and. And one of the big concerns they have, especially in some of the schools in the Richmond area, is how do you get people interested in, in science and technology and math? You know, the, and, and that's the engineering, the sort of STEM uh, disciplines. And just talking to them about math and physics or chemistry doesn't really interest them. No, it doesn't. Uh, that's true. But they can, they can look at archaeology, and they can look at archaeology as something that overlaps with all of that. And if you sort of get them hooked by archaeology and, and sort of the technology process of creating these digital models, um, then the idea is that you could sort of bring them, you know, sort of towards a path, uh, um, towards one of these STEM disciplines. Have your students uh, carried this uh, to a, a, a great extent? I mean, are they are they actually getting sufficiently motivated to develop their own projects? Um, yeah, actually, we've uh, um, uh, at a some regional conferences, archaeological conference over the last couple of years. I've had. Uh, students uh, present their own original research on, on various aspects wow. of the of the archaeological process. Uh, and in fact, that uh, the uh, there's a Mid Atlantic Archaeological Conference, and we were talking about that earlier. We, we've both been to that. Um, but one of my students won the best student paper contest for the research that she had been doing uh, on using digital models for educational purposes, and in in a variety of venues. and And she's actually going to be publishing that research um, uh, later this year. Um, so, and I have, uh, we have a, a archaeology conference coming up in a, in a couple of months, and I have, mm -hmm. I think, six or seven students that are going to be presenting on various aspects of their own research. So they're, so they're really engaged in, in, in the 3D project, and they're, they're really using this uh, as an opportunity to, to get access to collections they otherwise would not have access to. Um, and that's something I've been able to do because um, – we're very sort of more mobile. We don't have to actually sit in our laboratory and scan stuff, right, although we do course. that. But we can take our scanner to places. And you, you sort of, you know, sort of a, um, a passport to, to a lot of places. You go, we have a 3D laser scanner. Can we come in and scan some of your stuff? 
And so I've been going around to various locations. Uh, I mentioned Mount Vernon, the Virginia Museum of Natural History, uh, Jamestown, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, um, and a number of other uh, um, heritage locations and, and scanning objects for individuals, uh, scanned a number of Civil War artifacts from the uh, uh, Battle Fredericksburg, which has had its 150th anniversary. Right. And and so the, taking the scanner, and I bring the, the students come along with me, and I, they actually, of course, do most of the work, but it's a way for them to engage with people, uh, with professionals, and, and a way for professionals to see them sort of dedicated and focused and interested. Um, and so, that's sort of that's been a great tool uh, for me, uh, for for engaging students. So it sounds like it. Taking taking a step backwards, why in fact are we scanning what we are scanning? What are the reasons um, for that? That's a curiosity. Well, uh, the, the the things that we're scanning uh, um, uh, are often sort of driven by uh, you know I, my own research interests. I'm interested. You know, I mentioned the Monongahela. I mentioned in WPA. So I've been scanning stuff. Uh, associated with with those cultures, um, and and sort of I'm looking at this for me for my own research, sort of a long term thing. Within about uh, you know a couple of years, I think I'll have a sort of a critical mass that I can begin to make really sort of meaningful comparisons between uh, uh, multiple archaeological sites. Um, uh, part of what we are doing in terms of scanning has been to uh, extend the sort of interpret interpretive scope. Of, of various locations, sort of getting at that information uh, that you wouldn't otherwise get, looking at the American Indian occupations at, at sort of various, you know, historic sites in, in Virginia. Um, excuse me. Yeah, so are you looking at comparative uh, patterns that, that are uh, recurring in various sites that are showing you site settlement patterning or functional patterning or workspaces that seem to replicate each other in terms of debris and that sort of thing? We're, we're actually planning on looking at um, a variation within the region in uh, so-called uh, diagnostic artifacts right. um, to look to see if there's really any significant difference. And, and this is sort of a sort of a two-stage uh, um, uh, project, and we just actually got uh, additional funding uh, from the Department of Defense to do this. Is we're going to work on creating a digital um, type collection that anybody can sort of download off the internet and, and manipulate projectile points in three dimensions. So uh, but we're not, we're not just going to have one example of every right. point from one site or two examples of a point from one site. We're going to multiple sites and, and scanning as many of the points that have been identified to particular types. Right. And then and you then, really then be able to look at that variation. And then what? Um, and then, well, we're going to uh, uh, test to see whether or not people are, um, for example, you know, we, we identify these points as being similar um, is there really a template that people are working on? How are people right. sharing this shape? Right. Um, and that's something that's always sort of interested me. Why do we have these wide-ranging shapes? Are they really as consistent as, as we sort of, you know, impose on them? When we, we assign projectile points a name and then sort of get rid of that sort of variation. Um, but is there significant variation? Is there sort of like regional variation or site variation where you have sure. people interpreting this template in their own eyes? Are you finding that there are any classes of items that are especially favorably scanned for analytical purposes or interpretive purposes? Um, well, one of the uh, um, I, I sort of meant, I, I think I've, the term I use is, is digital triage. Um, there are some wow. things that scan better than other things, and, and sort of one of the uh, with this particular scanner, um, although it shares the, the same problem with other scanners. Um, when you're, when you're seeing these digital databases being developed, what you're seeing is what works. 
Um, and uh, one of the advantages we have with our particular project is, is we can be very blunt about what it doesn't work on. Sure, of course. Uh, yeah. And so, so we're, we're very careful that, you know, when you're seeing digital collections, um, you're not seeing all the stuff it didn't work on. So our particular scanner doesn't work very well with uh, glass, for example. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it doesn't work very well with reflective things. Uh, it doesn't work very well with dark things. You have to, you have to, you have to do something to the object uh, to make it possible for the scanner to pick it up. Um, and some objects, archaeological objects, you can't alter. Uh, they're too sensitive. Um, things like coins and buttons are, are kind of thin, and, and they often don't sure. work. And so, so projectile points are, are, are a little bit of a challenge. Uh, we usually have to sort of coat them with a, with a powder, um, particularly things like quartz and quartzite that have reflective surfaces right. uh, so that when the laser hits them, it, the laser goes off in all kinds of directions and actually needs to go straight back. To the Those scanner, but if we, if we, yeah. if we coat it yeah. with a powder, uh, we don't have that issue. We'll be back in, uh, in a few seconds, and we will continue our discussion with Dr. Bernard Means after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, Tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. We are engaged in a very fascinating discussion with Dr. Bernard Means of Virginia Commonwealth University, and the topic is virtual curation and the virtual curation laboratory. Um, (coughs) We had been talking about the types of objects that scan well 
and the types of objects that scan relatively poorly at this stage in in this very experimental phase of this type of work. And uh, Bernard, you had mentioned over the break that bone tends to scan uh, reasonably well, and obviously there's a lot of interpretive potential in looking at bone assemblages. So what are we seeing and where are we going with bone scanning? Um, one of the things about bone scanning is, is uh, as I mentioned earlier, is, is making sort of type collections available so people can identify their bone. Uh, but the other thing that we can do with bone is we can look at bone tools, for example, things that tools are being made out of the bone after people have sort of consumed uh, the animal. And we can begin to look at uh, significant uh, um, differences that might be related to sort of the function of the object, um, uh, Maybe there's uh, temporal differences in how people are using bone tools. Sure. And, and it's, it's hard when you're looking at sort of a picture of a bone tool or a drawing of a bone tool to sort of really a- a- appreciate some of the sort of the nuances of these uh, sort of complicated objects. Um, as I was talking about during the break, one of, one of the not really nice advantages of virtual models of artifacts or, or, or bone objects is that the person on the receiving end who, who downloads the, the bone tool or, or the bone, um, they're not just looking at a passive picture. Sure. Um, they're not looking at a drawing that, that's being presented to them in, in a particular way that's, that limits their interpretations. They can actually take the digital model and they can, they can rotate it, they can zoom in, they can measure it any which way that they want and, and, and come up with their own interpretations. So this is a very sort of uh, some people call it sort of a reflexive archaeology so that the consumer can uh, interpret on, on the same level as the, the, the archaeologist the pro- who's producing the information. Right, yeah. Uh, reflexive archaeology, of course, is, is certainly a watchword in this day and age. What about the future? Where are um, we going with this? And where do you see us is, in 10 is, years? Is uh, making things available to people right now. Um, there's basically a narrow band of researchers who are sort of, in many ways, working independently of one another. And we sort of run into each other actually on the web, you know, through Facebook or something like that. And we're right. beginning to sort of talk about how, how are we going to share the information we have, sort of the, you know, what are the protocols that we're going to use? Um, um, what are the issues we're going to have with sharing information? Um, you know, we're taking stuff from museum collections. Uh, what are the limitations that the, the museums themselves might impose? Um, we have to be aware of of, of our audiences. Um, there are some objects that that we've scanned for uh, preservation reasons um, that we can't share with individuals. So we sort of have to deal with that issue. I, there uh, are ethical issues involved as well. There, there are tremendous ethical issues involved as well, and 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 uh, archaeologists haven't always been good about navigating those ethical issues. And one Clearly. of the challenges of digital data, it's a lot easier to sort of accidentally share. Uh, digital data in a way you couldn't do with the actual object. Um, sure. So if you scan something from a grave, for example, you could email it to somebody. If that person accidentally shared it with somebody else, um, they didn't mean to. Then it's then it's out there, in sort of the cybersphere. So so then it's then it's out there and uncontrolled. Where do you see us in ten years? I think in ten years you're going to see that uh, people are going to be able to interact and and deal with heritage locations and deal with archaeological sites uh, in, in a way that allows them to sort of get a meaningful appreciation for the site from their own homes or from their schools. Uh, um, and, and in many ways, I think that will actually encourage people to go to the sites themselves. 
Um, there have been a, a few studies have been done that seems that by making people aware of, of the digital artifact, that sparks their interest. They want to go see the real thing. And so I yes, think this, is, this might be a way of sort of um, revitalizing people's interest in the past. And, and that's something I certainly would like to see. Can can we do that on the site level or just the artifact level? I mean, we're, what about monument monuments and larger sites and and buildings and uh, structures and and ancient cities? Um, and that, yeah, actually, you can do that. Uh, um, uh, much more uh, complicated scanner than we have now. Clearly. But there are actually uh, nonprofit institutions that are going around and scanning buildings. Uh, they're scanning Maya temples. Uh, they're scanning statues. Um, and, and, and that's a way of sort of preserving things, particularly in places where uh, you might have, you know, if you're in a, in a sort of a, a potential war zone or an active war zone. I was just going to say that. Yeah. And in fact, you know, if, 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 if this technology had been available, those two Afghani Buddhist statues uh, that the Taliban destroyed, yeah. Yeah, they could have been yeah. preserved at least digitally. And, and some people have talked about that. If we had, if we had scanned those statues then today you could actually project a 3D image into the location where those statues were. So it would be a way of, of preserving those things and, and things like, you know, things that you think are safe uh, that aren't. There was a Maya temple in uh, Belize that was bulldozed recently for road construction uh, fill, you know, and that site's gone. Um, um, and if, if we had been able to sort of record that site itself, then, then we would at least have that. And so the, that that's an interesting quandary for, say, students who are working in war zones and may have done half of their research and all of a sudden they have to run away and perhaps their potential dissertation is not lost forever. They, If they've uh, got some of that imagery, they could probably cultivate it and work it into a dissertation anyway. Well, and, and some people have actually uh, used this this particular model scanner in the in the field. It ha it has its issues, but if you're doing archaeology outside of the United States, uh, if you're an American, um, and as you well know, you usually have restrictions. You you can't take the objects out of the country. Of course, and so not, people yeah. have been sort of limited to, as to what they could do. They could take a few photographs and make some drawings, maybe really quickly. Um, but some objects you really want to have a sort of a detailed uh, uh, analysis, and you can. You can either set up a – some people have done this. You can set up a scanner in a laboratory. It's actually creating the digital files is not that hard. We've actually, uh, for our Defense Department uh, um, project, we've actually developed very detailed protocols. Actually, one of my students uh, uh, was, took the lead on this that basically walks you through the whole process of scanning an artifact. Uh, you don't know, you need to know anything about archaeology. Um, I, I think before the show we were talking about the Veterans Curation Project, of course, yeah. uh, which uses returning war veterans to um, to deal with the past. This would be ideal for something like that. You could you could train people; uh, they could scan, you know, five or six scanners. You could scan a large number of artifacts. And even if you don't have time to to um, work with the digital data files now, you could even farm those digital data files out to colleges and, and you know, or, or even high schools have. Uh, uh, students that, are, that have the ability and the interest to actually edit those data files. And that would uh, seem to be a very logical and very appropriate way to use the technology. Yeah, I guess you could, you could crowdsource virtual curation that way, yes, um, if you sort right. of think about it. And you could move along in that direction. Um, so the future seems to be very bright for this sort of technology, I would think, and hopefully it will advance at uh, a more rapid pace. 
because it certainly seems to be something that in the age of sustainability will will certainly benefit the the, the profession yeah and and if you think about um you know um Museum staffs aren't getting any bigger. Um, That's for sure, so yeah. If, if they can devote their time, instead of dragging out the same old artifact again and again for researchers to look That's at true. it, they can devote their time to dealing with the myriad collections issues they have and, and let people know, here's, here's a printed copy of the artifact or here's a digital mart of the artifact. You know, for, for a lot of researchers, that's sufficient. Sure, sure, certainly in terms of procuring uh, data on a larger scale, which is is really very important ultimately when you want to do reconstructions. Um, you need more information, and you don't necessarily just have to look at beautiful things. You have to just get information. And so uh, I think that's, that that's pretty much sums up a, a pretty optimistic overview of, of where this is going. And unfortunately, we have run out of time, so I want to thank Dr. Bernard means of Virginia Commonwealth University for participating in the program and uh, we will see you all next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.